This is Tom Wilmoth with The Vinyl Approach, number 25. After the previous episode on Woodstock, certain aspects of the festival kept invading my thoughts. And since it is still August, let's talk a little bit more about that 1969 gathering. Last time I spoke quite a bit about what might have been and what bands didn't play. Today we look at the career trajectories of some of the performers who did play and are on the original soundtrack. There will be thematic cul-de-sacs in this episode, no doubt, but let's try to focus on the artists that appear on the Woodstock soundtrack album, a three-record set. As I said last time, it was a collection of music that, for me, became remarkably influential. This triple album became the best-known artifact of Woodstock for many years following the event. The documentary movie played theaters, of course, but once the film had finished its run, the album became the main resource for examining the festival. It wasn't until 1987 that Warner Home Video released the Woodstock movie on videotape. Because the album was the most accessible document on what went on at the festival, it was not until fairly recently that even people who remember and talk about Woodstock became aware of some bands that played there. Most didn't know that Johnny Winter performed, or Creedence Clearwater Revival, or The Grateful Dead. But they did. These bands just didn't make the movie. Or, more importantly for immediate posterity, they did not appear on the album. Immediate posterity. Is that an oxymoron? Let's take a look at what is on the Woodstock album. Side 1 begins with a ballad called I Had a Dream, written and performed by John B. Sebastian. As I mentioned last time, John Sebastian wasn't scheduled to play at Woodstock, but was backstage when there were safety concerns about electrical equipment following the Saturday rainstorm. Sebastian borrowed Tim Harden's acoustic guitar and filled some time with a short set. Two of the songs appear on the Woodstock album, and a third is featured in the movie. Not bad for a performer who wasn't even booked to play. John Sebastian was well known to his musical colleagues and to the audience. The crowd knew him from fronting the group The Lovin' Spoonful, who had seven top ten hits in the mid-1960s, including Summer in the City, You Didn't Have to Be So Nice, Rain on the Roof, and their wonderful debut single, Do You Believe in Magic. Musical colleagues knew Sebastian from being part of The Spoonful, but also for his previous work on the folk music scene and for his abilities with harmonica. Sebastian played harp in many settings, including with The Doors when they were at Detroit's Cobo Hall in 1970. To focus on his own career, Sebastian turned down going on the road as bassist in Bob Dylan's New Electric Band in 1965, and he later declined an invitation to join Crosby, Stills, and Nash as their fourth member. That's a pretty good resume. Dylan would soon find the band to back him, while Crosby, Stills, and Nash would settle for Neil Young. That's an oversimplification, but you get the idea. Sebastian seems to have the ability to remain on good terms with people as he does later play harmonica on the title song of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Deja Vu album. As for John Sebastian's own solo career, it never really blossomed. However, seven years after Woodstock, he did have an unexpected number one hit with Welcome Back, the theme song for a television sitcom about a teacher called Welcome Back, Cotter. It was Sebastian's only top 40 hit. By the way, that sitcom launched the career of John Travolta, who played a student in Cotter's class. The song that John Sebastian sings to begin the Woodstock album is called I Had a Dream, one in a long line of dream songs, including Bob Dylan's Dream, Roy Orbison's In Dreams, and the Everly Brothers' All I Have to Do is Dream. Many dream songs and pop music would follow. But Sebastian's I Had a Dream has the thematic template of Ed McCurdy's 1950 folk song, Last Night I Had the Strangest Dream. Each is an optimistic work describing a better world, and each has been called simplistic. No matter, 
John Sebastian's I Had a Dream is a gentle and appropriate place to begin the two hours of music that follows. John Sebastian played I Had a Dream on the Woodstock stage that August afternoon in 1969, but there has been discussion about whether the specific performance found on the album was really recorded at Woodstock. That question has also been raised about a few other songs on this soundtrack. We'll talk about that later. After the opening ballad from John Sebastian comes the recognizable hit Going Up the Country, sung by Canned Heat. These guys were record collectors who started a band. It worked. They developed a large, if temporary, following, especially for Going Up the Country. The songwriter for that number is listed as one of the Canned Heat band members, but the song is closely based on an old blues number by Henry Thomas called Bulldoze Blues. And I mean really close. These days, copyright infringement lawsuits over music ownership are common. I'm thinking here of the protracted court case concerning the melody to Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin and how the band is accused of lifting its music from a song they once heard. So I don't understand how Can's Heat Going Up the Country can be ascribed to a modern songwriter if Henry Thomas has already recorded that exact melody and arrangement in 1928. Is it a question of the song being in the public domain? Or do we simply chalk it up to being from another era? I don't know. But I do know a music copyright lawyer. Maybe I'll pick his brain for a future Vinyl Approach episode. One last example. Go listen to the song When the World's on Fire, a 1930 recording by the Carter family. See if that song's melody reminds you of anything that became famous years later. Canned Heat often played lengthy tunes. Woodstock Boogie from the festival is nearly 30 minutes long. Refried Boogie on their Live in the Blues album is more than 40. The problem for me with these tunes, unlike some stretch numbers by the Grateful Dead or the Allman Brothers, is that I don't find the long Canned Heat numbers particularly interesting. Sorry. Canned Heat played Monterey Pop in 1967, Woodstock in 69, and lots of other festivals, but their success didn't transfer very far into the 1970s. In fact, the group was already beginning to splinter from within during the months before Woodstock. Their slide guitar and harpist Alan Blind Owl Wilson died by suicide a year after the festival. Canned Heat continues to tour and record, but after co-founder Wilson died, the band was never the same. The opening two songs by John Sebastian and Canned Heat almost serve as an overture to the Woodstock album. Following Going Up the Country are some stage announcements, then comes music from the first performer of the festival, Richie Havens. The group Sweetwater was supposed to open the first day, but they got caught in traffic or their equipment was late or something. But Richie Havens was there, so he agreed to go on. I keep reading that he played for several hours, but tapes of the day indicate that he played nine songs in a set lasting less than one hour, which takes nothing at all away from Havens' performance or that he was willing to be the first act to face the already huge crowd. I think this has more to do with the elasticity of time. Maybe it just seemed to him like he played a long time. In any event, Havens' song Freedom incorporates the old spiritual Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, and I'm glad the song made it onto the album. The soundtrack record does not always attempt to present the acts in the order they played the festival, especially early on. The rest of Side One contains songs by Country Joe and the Fish, Arlo Guthrie, and Sha Na Na, none of whom played their sets close to one another. The inclusion of Country Joe and the Fish in the Woodstock lineup was almost an anachronism, their day had passed, but they were well received by the crowd, and their rock and soul music is a brief, solid rocker, followed by Arlo Guthrie's coming into Los Angeles. Guthrie was in a bit of a holding pattern at this time, two years after Alice's Restaurant and several years before City of New Orleans. Arlo Guthrie is remembered as much for what he says on this album as for the song he played. Guthrie describes the closed freeways leading to the festival site and the huge number of people. 
He is enthusiastic when he talks about how he'd been rapping with the fuzz. It's far out, he says, a lot of freaks. Rapping, fuzz, freaks, far out, hip jargon of the day. Guthrie's excitement for what he is experiencing at the festival is real and contagious. I discussed Sha-Na-Na in the previous episode. Their energetic rendition of At the Hop provides a fun and unexpected closing to side one. Country Joe McDonald managed to get his name in the Woodstock marquee credits twice, first with his band Country Joe and the Fish, and again for a solo set as Country Joe McDonald. It was during his solo performance that he sang the anthemic Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die Rag, a biting yet upbeat protest song about the Vietnam War. This satirical number begins side two, followed by two calmer protest numbers by Joan Baez. I never really had a lot of time for Country Joe McDonald. I liked the Fixin' to Die Rag and some parts of the Fish albums, but he never did much for me. I'm not sure how widespread this feeling was, but even getting his name on the Woodstock album cover twice, his was a career that didn't really reap long-term benefits from the Woodstock appearances. My respect for him did rise sharply a couple of years ago when I learned that it was country Joe McDonald who convinced the Bear Family record label of Germany to undertake a box set of songs about Vietnam. Typical of Bear Family Records when they decide to do a project, the box consists of 13 CDs containing 332 songs, which translates to about 17 hours of music. The box set's title comes from a line in McDonald's Fixin' to Die Rag. It's called, Next Stop is Vietnam, The War on Record, 1961-2008. to Joe McDonald helped with this massive project and wrote the accompanying book's introductory notes. My respect for Joan Baez has likewise risen, especially when I returned to the early recordings. Even in 1969, her voice still sounded great, and the two songs used on the Woodstock album reflect her ongoing commitment to political causes. The first is Drugstore Truck Driving Man, a performance dedicated to the then-governor of California, Ronald Reagan. The song was recorded by the Birds, and hey, why weren't the Birds at Woodstock? And it was written by the Birds' leader, Roger McGuinn and Graham Parsons. Baez is joined on Drugstore Truck Driving Man by a singer named Jeffrey Shirtleff. He released one album under his own name and sings with Baez on her 1970 album, One Day at a Time. After this, Shirtleff vanishes from the music scene. Baez sings the other song by herself, a number associated with Paul Robeson called Joe Hill. This is a pro-labor union song from 1936 that has too long of a history to relate here, but it was good to see Baez include this historical protest number in her set, and she sings it well. One thing I want to mention about Joan Baez is that she was willing to play on the festival's side stage. It was a small performance space constructed by the Merry Pranksters and members of the Hog Farm. Both collectives were at Woodstock to assist with festival logistics. This alternative, or free stage, was meant to provide a place for non-professionals to perform whatever they felt. I understand there were poetry readings, a drum clinic, and even a wedding was held there. Baez went to this small stage and sang a few songs to a small crowd before her main stage appearance Friday night. She later said she had hoped this would inspire other big names to do the same, but she is the only performer known to have played the free stage. Baez is distinctive in another way. Along with Arlo Guthrie and Sweetwater, Baez was one of the few Woodstock acts to play religious numbers at the festival, singing Swing Low Sweet Chariot and Oh Happy Day, which she also played at the free stage. It's said that Baez's manager had to come find her when she was scheduled for her main stage performance. She was still singing at the intimate free stage. Good for her. 
Baez is an interesting case. She was already so well known that Woodstock neither helped nor hindered her popularity. Instead, her presence gave the festival more credibility. Having been a folk music star since 1959, she was an old guard pro by the time of her August 1969 set and the most established act to perform at Woodstock. After Joan Baez, Side 2 continues with a few more seemingly random but carefully selected stage announcements. Then, one of the album's most anticipated sets begins. Crosby, Stills, and Nash sing Stephen Stills's Judy Blue Eyes Suite. The harmonies are ragged at times, but it works. And speaking of carefully selected audio, if you listen closely during the introductory segment, you can hear David Crosby say, I've got the joint for when we get into the electric shit. Be prepared, I guess. Neil Young then joins the group for Sea of Madness, and their set spills onto the record's third side for Wooden Ships. The recording of Sea of Madness included on the album does not actually come from Woodstock. I learned this from a Neil Young bootleg where Neil tells this to the audience. I was initially dismayed by this revelation of misrepresentation, but I came to terms with it. Most of the music on the album is recorded at the festival, but there are a few alternate takes and overdubs involved. As I said earlier, it's a topic for another time. The end of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young's Wooden Ships flows into the concluding section of the Who's song, We're Not Gonna Take It, the finale of their rock opera, Tommy. I have always thought there should have been more Who on the album. I mean, what's included here is really just half of one song. Even so, it rocks pretty hard, and I was glad to have it. I had been a big fan of the Who's Tommy album even before I had heard about Woodstock. The movie also includes the Who's Summertime Blues. Wish they'd made room for that on the record. Another reason I find it curious that The Who was arguably shortchanged on the album was because festival organizer Michael Lang has talked about how hard he worked to get The Who to play Woodstock. They were an anchor group of sorts. That is, if Lang could tell other bands that The Who had agreed to appear, that gave a lot of credibility to the event, and other acts would also agree to play. It seemed to work. And if you listen to Chip Monk's stage announcements about The Who in the movie, he specifically says that the band traveled all the way from England just to play this festival. After Woodstock, The Who would continue to solidify their fan base. Seeing them in the film helped. Soon after Woodstock came the great live at Leeds record, and then in 1971 their masterwork, Who's Next? After a few more stage announcements, Joe Cocker comes on to give another of the albums and the festival's highlights with a little help from my friends. Concluding his set just before the major rainstorm, Cocker makes the song and the audience his own, an unforgettable performance. Side 3 fades out to the sound of mayhem as the storm approaches. Side 4 opens with a lengthy rain chant by the crowd that is cool for the way album producer Eric Blackstead has a segue into the opening conga drum pattern of Santana's Soul Sacrifice. Almost nobody at the festival or at the movie theater had heard of this West Coast band, but they sure remembered them afterwards. Percussion, a hot guitar, and babyface Michael Shreve on drums. It was great, and the Santana band went on to enjoy decades of fame based on this performance. The other song on side four is I'm Going Home by Ten Years After, which I talked about last time. The two lengthy numbers on this side of the album have a couple of things in common. The first is that these songs both gave their groups huge career momentum. Less evident is the fact that both recordings, while from the festival, have been shortened by about four minutes each. And I would argue that each song benefits by the editing, tightening them just enough to keep the numbers exciting throughout. I have heard the longer, complete versions, and they are just that. Long. Blackstead did both bands a service by editing the tunes to 8 and 9 minutes, respectively. Interestingly enough, the movie version of I'm Going Home is longer, that is, less edited, than its album counterpart. 
By the way, to even consider that an edited version of a song could be superior was a long time coming for me. There was a day when I would have shrieked at the thought of cutting a single note from a recorded performance. And I am still wary of such tampering, but with both the Santana and the Ten Years After songs on the Woodstock soundtrack, the shortened versions are better. That will not be my opinion with the edited version of Jimi Hendrix's performance still to come. Side 5 opens with a song by a band that should have been in the movie, but wasn't. The Jefferson Airplane. Even their brief spot on the album is not representative of how they performed at Woodstock, which was fine, especially considering that they went on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. In spite of their fatigue, the Jefferson Airplane played one of the longer sets of the festival. Members of the group never spoke very highly of their Woodstock set, but many Airplane fans disagree with the band's negative assessment. I do. On the Woodstock soundtrack, they play Volunteers, the title song from their soon-to-be-released album. Volunteers was the last great album the Jefferson Airplane recorded. In the spring of 1971, lead singer Marty Ballin would leave the group that he formed, tired of being constantly overshadowed and no longer able to relate to the rest of the band. Too bad. When Balin and Grace Slick sang together, it could be magic, as on the song The Other Side of This Life. Volunteers was an odd selection to pull from their live set. Maybe it sounded like a hippie anthem to the producers, but it isn't indicative of what Grace Slick called their morning maniac music. The Woodstock 2 album includes two superior airplane songs from the festival, Eskimo Blue Day and Saturday Afternoon Won't You Try. Anyway, I always felt that the Jefferson Airplane was sort of shortchanged by Woodstock. They do not appear in the movie and have one short song on the album, and this as their glory days as a band were almost over. And this brings up another point about timelines. Several new bands would use Woodstock as a career launching pad. For others, it was close to the end of their run. As the 1970s began, the Jefferson Airplane would begin its descent. The family stone developed fissures. The fish were all but finished. Canned Heat would lose Alan Wilson, and Janice and Jimmy would both die in the year following the festival. So it's good that we have documentation of these performers before the curtain was forever drawn. If the Jefferson Airplane's contribution to the Woodstock soundtrack was minimal, the next act was given room to spare. Sly and the Family Stone gets over 15 minutes of Side 5, and their three songs are great. Carlos Santana said Sly never played this well again, so maybe it's appropriate that he is prominently featured. The footage of the Family Stone in the movie is a definite peak. Sly is able to work the crowd of 400,000 or whatever insane number it was that night. He rose to the occasion. That would not always be the case at subsequent concerts. But, as Carlos says, Woodstock was Sly's moment. If you are ever in doubt play his songs from the Woodstock album. The Family Stone's entire performance at the festival was released as an individual CD in 2009. The complete or almost complete Woodstock performances of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Johnny Winter, Joe Cocker, Santana, and the Jefferson Airplane were also released individually. And, as you may know, in 2019, for the 50th anniversary of the festival, Rhino Records released a limited edition 38 CD box set containing all of the Woodstock performers' complete sets, or nearly so. The list price was $800. It sold out immediately. After the intensity of Sly and the Family Stone, Side 5 returns to acoustic music with John Sebastian's Rainbows All Over Your Blues. 
I have already talked about Sebastian and his impromptu set, but I'll say a bit more. I found his song selection for that afternoon performance interesting. He didn't go for the obvious leaven spoonful of crowd pleasers like What a Day for a Daydream. He played one of the group's later, lesser hits, but one of my favorites, called Darling Be Home Soon. And he ends with his former band song, Younger Generation, which he turns into the perfect commentary about the generational strife felt by so many at Woodstock. In fact, I have always felt that Younger Generation and John Sebastian's comments to the audience following the song would have been a better way to end Side 5 than with his Rainbows tune, but they forgot to ask me. The concluding side of the triple album features two groups. I talked about the Paul Butterfield Blues Band Love March during the previous episode, but I will again say that the song is a model of looseness, seeming to be on the verge of collapsing at any moment, yet holding together in a compelling eight-minute plea for tolerance. It is a summation of Woodstock. The other group was supposed to be the Jimi Hendrix Experience, or at least that's the trio the organizers booked, but Hendrix had changed things up a bit before the festival, arriving instead with his short-lived Gypsy Sun and Rainbows ensemble. The guitarist told the crowd that they were nothing but a band of gypsies. By any name, it was still Jimi Hendrix, and that's all that mattered to this exhausted Woodstock audience. Hendrix, or his manager, or both, insisted that Jimi close the festival, playing last as his contract called for. Woodstock organizer Michael Lang often said how he wanted Hendrix to go on at midnight while the crowd was still large and then do his set. But nope, Hendrix insisted that he was closing, and so he closed, taking the stage at about 9 a.m. Monday morning to gray skies and around 40,000 of the remaining faithful who had stayed to hear him. There is a lot to say about Hendrix at Woodstock, too much for today's podcast, so let's just talk about what is used on the record. The 12-minute excerpt that appears on side 6 is part of Hendrix's set closer, a piece that runs about 30 minutes. I have always thought that it would have been groundbreaking if they had used the entire uncut medley for one full side of the album. Logistically possible at that length, but rarely done, and not because of diminished sound quality. Don't get me started. What is used on the Woodstock soundtrack is the concluding section of the long piece, picking up just before the star-spangled banner and traveling through Purple Haze and Hendrix's instrumental solo. On later releases, this section would be retitled Villanova Junction, in order to count it as an individual copyrightable tune, I am guessing. Whatever you choose to call it, the guitar work that follows Purple Haze is remarkable. Unfortunately, one impressive instrumental passage is edited from the soundtrack album. I always think of it as his Spanish scales section, as it seems almost flamenco in nature. Too bad it was cut. But this section is left intact on some of the subsequently released versions of Hendrix's Woodstock set. The history of this particular recording is long and tangled, and it will be addressed on a future podcast. The consensus by those who had seen Hendrix before Woodstock was that he'd given better shows, but this was still a good set. And a long set, the longest concert Hendrix is known to have ever played. A lot of jamming takes place here as he is feeling his way through the arrangements with some new people added to the band. After playing close to two hours of music, Hendrix even says to the audience, You can leave if you want to. We're just jamming, that's all. The jamming will give way to the work's concluding section, a slow, mournful passage with just Jimmy's guitar and some light percussion a melodic segment that offers sonic contrasts to the guitar pyrotechnics that precede it. The piece ends. Jimmy quietly thanks the subdued crowd, which slowly comes out of the trance Hendrix's music has evoked. They begin to cheer for more, and the album ends. And so does the official audio document of the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair of 1969. There would be more recordings from the festival released, of course. In 1971, the double album Woodstock 2 came out. 
Individual unreleased concert tracks showed up on anthology collections by Santana, Country Joe and the Fish, The Who, and others. Robbie Shankar released a full album of what was purported to be his Woodstock performance, but it wasn't. After the mid-1970s, excitement died down for all things Woodstock, but never completely went away. Decades later, interest was rekindled in some quarters by the full set releases of a few performers and by that 50th anniversary box set of complete recordings from the festival. So if you want to know what music was played at Woodstock, it's out there. Since the previous Vinyl Approach episode, I've been thinking about other bands who didn't play the festival. There are a lot, of course, many who were not discussed last time. I want to close today by briefly mentioning two bands who were new at the time that Woodstock took place and could arguably have performed there. Festival organizers tried to balance the Woodstock lineup with established stars and new acts. One band came to mind that, had they been booked, would have cemented the organizers' reputation as music visionaries. But I know this is always easy to say after the fact. I am thinking of King Crimson. These prog rockers were playing live dates by this time and would even tour the U.S. in the fall of 1969. Had Robert Fripp led his group through the first Crimson album at Woodstock, it would have turned heads, that's for sure, with Fripp's guitar work and Greg Lake's otherworldly vocals. The other group is a less likely booking since they played only one live show in 1969, but it was in August, and that band is Black Sabbath. Had Sabbath played a set featuring their upcoming debut album, Woodstock could have forever claimed rights to having staged the first metal concert in America. But neither band played the festival, and this conjecture is just more of my pipe dream and wool gathering about Woodstock. So let's stop. There are other elements of the festival that I think warrant discussion, such as the album's stage announcements, Max Yasger, the Merry Pranksters, food provided by the Hog Farm, announcer Chipmunk, and the movie. Plus, I have more to say about the tricky topics of the Woodstock album's use of alternate takes and overdubbing. But I think I'll save all those subjects for next August. See you at the 54th. And so until next time, in just a couple of weeks, this has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmeth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. Speaking of copyrights... I was going to end today's vinyl approach with a recording of Arlo Guthrie saying, It's far out, man. Can you dig it? But a knowledgeable source has advised me not to include this audio clip from the soundtrack, for while there is no music involved, the fact that it is spoken from the Woodstock stage might cause me problems. Can you dig that?